Ephesians chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, beautiful day. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we thank you for this gift of the proclamation of your word where we hear it announced in its native language in announcing and heralding. And so Lord, I pray you would bless it. Lord, I pray that you would uh, use your word to comfort your people, to convict us of sin, to lead us in righteousness, Lord, and to, and to lead us in your love. Lord, I pray that you would do this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Over, you, you can be seated if you're not already. Uh, over the last no, lum, uh, number of weeks, we have been mining the scriptures for the, the gold, for the, the truth that Christ died for the sins of those who were made in his image. And now we, we realize that this is critical for a number of reasons, but we can see that uh, we bear God's image, that to be made in God's image, to be made to know and glorify and enjoy God, and then to represent him and to rule the world on his behalf, to represent him, to have such a dignity given to us, and then to, and then to end that glory, to sin against God, is the highest of all kinds of treasons, to bear God's image and then to sin against him while representing him. Christ, first being God himself, became an image bearer, a human. Christ came to fulfill what we failed to do and then to die for the sins that we committed as image bearers. And so we can see the sweetness of the sacrifice for the dreadful weight of our sin against the Lord God in whose image we were made in. And we also know that the scriptures declare that Christ's death and resurrection from the dead, they also not only forgive us for this sin, but they also, Christ's death and resurrection, it also frees us from this sin and renews us to walk in newness of life. And the promised gift of the Holy Spirit is to now conform those who have been saved, now to conform us in the image of Christ, the way that he imaged God. And so we see that this can be summarized, this imaging of God in the way according to God's will would be to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself. Christ was very clear that everyone is our neighbor. And so we do now need to know what it is to love someone made in the image of God. We need to know what that looks like. How, how do we honor? How do we dignify people as image bearers? Now we've already seen as we've been working through scripture on these questions that God himself gives us our identities. We're not free to change our identities or to change somebody else's identity, even at their request. And based on that identity that God gives a person, we're gonna know how to love and honor them as image bearers, how to glorify God by honoring these people. And today we turn to the question of race, which is actually a misnomer. It's a, actually, it's a bad way to describe the question because there is only one race and that is Adam's helpless race. All image bearers of God are in Adam's race and all of Adam's race are image bearers of God. But probably what people mean when they're talking about that is questions about different ethnicities. 
cultural and ethnic distinctions. Now it's a hot topic to be sure today. And it's very confusing. It's one that our cultural leaders can't seem to get straight for any length of time. What is the unchanging moral truth that they'll put a lot of confidence on that everybody should have known today is not the same as it was last year or 10 years from now or as it will be 10 years in the future? Should we make a little out of race? Should we make much of it? Should we see it? Should we not see it? Does loving someone and treating them with dignity mean treating them differently based on their race or does it mean treating them exactly the same? Now in the last couple of weeks, we saw the glorious design of God in his image bearers of male and female, two complementary halves. They're created both fundamentally the same and also fundamentally different so that to love a woman or a man is going to be very similar. But God does require you in some key ways to treat a man and a woman differently. In fact, he would call it a dishonor in some key ways to deny those differences. We saw that God's design on gender is part of his desire to glorify the sweet covenant love of the marriage of Christ in the church. And so we can look, is this the same as race? How does the gospel and the spirit of God now apply the gospel here to our lives? How does this transform our view of race? The question is how we love God and our neighbor as his image bearers. So we're going to turn to scripture to answer these questions. And our first point is this. All nations equally bear the image of God. All nations equally bear the image of God. Now what is obvious to one generation is not obvious to every single generation. We should not need to say these things today. You might say, why are you saying this? This is obvious. This is plain to see. Because you don't need scripture to know this. And you actually need to, to work very hard at suppressing the truth with God knit into creation and into our consciences. Paul describes this in Romans chapter one that we are actively suppressing the truth that is, should be obvious even without scripture. You have to do a lot of work suppressing the truth to conclude that nations, the ethnic groups are not all equally made in the image of God. But it is a common sin that's gonna be found in the pages of history. And we can't get arrogant about knowing this when other generations haven't known this because our own culture is doing the same thing in relation to the image of God for unborn babies or terminally ill people who have, been, who have decided or convinced by other people that their lives are no longer worth living. There was a time when that was common sense and inversely, there was a time when the, the fact that all nations are equally made in the image of God, when that wasn't common sense. So we're going to lay this foundation again and do it carefully because the Bible is going to tell us how to honor all nations and all ethnic groups. And we should not assume that it will always be embraced because it will not. It is not. So to, to establish this, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make men in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. 
humanity, man and woman, are made in God's image, male and female. God didn't, at the core of creation, create humanity into distinct image bearers based on anything other than gender. The only pre-fall description, distinction, is gender, male and female. The group of humanity can be summarized as male and female, not red or yellow or black or white, not tall or short. The image of God in its foundational distinctions is male and female, equal yet distinct and complementary to be very good at imaging God's character and dominion. So a church without women is an incomplete church. A church without men is an incomplete church. But you don't need a Dutchman to have a complete church. A marriage is incomplete. It's not really a marriage without a man. It's incomplete. It's not really a marriage without a woman. You don't need a Dutchman to have a marriage though. The two complementary distinctive halves that God has established humanity in is male and female and we can find no other in scripture. After the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 and 20, after Adam plunged the whole race into sin and condemnation, we find this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. All living. Eve is said to be the mother of all living. All humans, every nation, every ethnic group find their first mother in Eve, which makes them image bearers, all men and women, whether they are redeemed or not, belonging to God by faith in the gospel or not, are image bearers of God. Coming from Adam and Eve, the fall of sin didn't erase that. The sins of your culture did not erase that. The advanced nature of your culture doesn't erase or increase that. The only qualification for considering a person as an image bearer is whether or not they are descended from Adam and Eve. And that means all then the commands of God regarding humans apply to them and apply to you in your treatment of them. And so God's command to love your neighbor as yourself applies to you. And you are sinning against God himself to deny this truth. And we find this in Leviticus chapter 19, also in the New Testament, Leviticus 19 verse 9. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker you shall not, shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your neighbor in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now I wonder if you notice the command at the end here. The reason why you should obey this command. I am the Lord, says God. Chilling words to those who ignore these commands. Why? Because I am the Lord, says God. All descendants of Adam and Eve, all humans are made in God's image. There's no distinction of that between ethnic groups. There really is no significant distinction in terms of how you should treat a person. 
how to honor them based on ethnicity. It's not like gender in that regard. All nations equally bear the image of God. Second point is this, all nations fell into condemnation together with Adam. All nations fell into condemnation together with Adam. Speaking of Christ being the covenant head of the church, Paul says first that Adam was the covenant head of all humanity. The covenant head as such all fell into sin and death with him. He was their perfect representative, perfectly representing them. He was their covenant head and in him they all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 says this, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so, as, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're a human being who dies or can die, you're a sinner. You are condemned in Adam, your neighbor with a different skin color or language or accent. How do you know if he and you are both condemned in Adam? Will both of you likely die? Then yes, death. Is there a nation, is there an ethnic group that doesn't die? Because if there is, then you could make the case that they are not condemned in Adam. But there is no distinction. Noah, God's chosen man to rescue and continue humanity while God washed the sinful peoples off the earth, he very quickly demonstrated that he was a sinner as well after the flood that he was a true son of Adam. No ethnic group has a monopoly on having sin inherent to them. No ethnic group has a monopoly on having sin inherent to them. We all have the same sin inherent to us in our DNA. No ethnic group can say they have less sin in their DNA. No ethnic group can say they have different sin in their DNA. So a person born into a Dutch family is going to have the same and just as much sin in their DNA as a person born into a Colombian family. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All inherit the blessing, the beautiful dignity and privilege of being an image bearer of God from Adam. And all inherit the curse of being a sinful image bearer from Adam since his fall into sin as our covenant head represents us before God. As our second point, all nations fell into condemnation together with Adam. Brings us to our third point. We'll talk a little bit about some culture thing, th- things here. First, third point is this. Babel or Babel accelerated God's plan to fill the earth with image bearers. Now, when we speak of the division of the nations, the separation and distinctions of the nations, the different ethnic groups, we rightly think of the Tower of Babel or Babel. But diversity did not begin there. And it didn't end there. It was, though, accelerated. See, the post-flood people did migrate, but instead of expanding for the glory of God, filling the earth and subduing it for God's glory to make a name for God, they decided to stay together so they could make a name for themselves. And so God brought the, distinct, the, the uh, confusion of the language in the Tower of, of Babel. He did this to accelerate that, to hinder their plans to stay together, to make a name for themselves, to spread them abroad, to become these distinct cultures and nations for the glory of God. 
Genesis 11 verse eight, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the, the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord, here's what he did, dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so the result, the goal was the dispersal of the image of God on all the earth. Developing cultures and subduing the earth and making discoveries of technologies and civilizations and, and things to help with the flourishing of human life. Technologies and, and medicines and, 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 and statecraft and art and music and sports and recreation. Many different families, different ethnic groups, tribes and nations and languages through so though fallen and condemned to hell for their sin, still image bearers of God, descendants of Adam and Eve. This was God's plan all along. It wasn't a mistake. The Tower of Babel was not therefore something. The result of this wasn't a mistake. It was actually God's judgment to accelerate this, what they were trying to stop. God accelerated that by confusing their language. This was God's plan, a globe filled with image bearers of different colors and languages and cultures. Each group would one day hear the gospel of Christ in their own language. And churches would be birthed praising God and singing songs in each of these innumerable languages to the praise of God's glory. That Christ would be glorified in the salvation of people from many nations. Praising him in all the language that cursed him because he took their curse. Our fourth point is this, God called out a family and made a covenant with them. Of this mass of humanity, a plethora of families, of ethnic groups and peoples, God called out one man and out of him made a nation, a new nation, a new family. And this would be the household of God. The man's name at the time was Abram, but because of this covenant, he was renamed Abraham. You see this in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, to, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is taking Abraham out of the nations out of the families and making him a nation, a family, a household, so that all families, all nations, all ethnic groups would someday be blessed through this family. And so we have here another living parable, which God is prone to do. A household of God that we have distinct from the nations. In the parable the living parable, this real parable of the house of Israel is that, is that of a household of God that you're naturally not part of. Enemies of God, you are born an enemy of God, but you can become a child. You can be added to his family by faith in his promise. Abraham too was a sinner who was born in sin and born under the curse of Adam. He was born dead in sin and just like the people of all the nations and ethnic groups before him and around him, he was born an enemy of God. But receiving the promise by faith, he was added to the household, the family of God as a son rather than an enemy. All people are born 
not as children of God, but as children of wrath, children of sin, born with hearts that are enemy hearts. Abraham also, as well as his children. And so dear friends, if you are not trusting in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of sin and trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ, you are not a child of God, but you are a stranger. You are an enemy of God. By making this family, the children of Abraham, a household called out of the nations, God was demonstrating this and he was using it as a living parable. There is a household of God and no one is born as a child of God, none. In creating Israel, God was making a very clear picture of a family and of an in and of an out of that family. You're either part of the covenant family of God or you're not. Counting on his promises or not. Expecting grace or judgment. What is important to note in that this distinction between Jew and Gentile, part of the household of God or not, it was never any genetic feature noted. No genetic feature was ever noted. Not once is a Jew or an Israelite described genetically in terms of height or strength or skin color or hair color or facial features or intelligence. Nothing which could establish a distinction visually between an heir of Abraham and those who are not such heirs. But God did establish external visible markers. The things which normally mark publicly a different culture, food laws, clothing laws. In addition to the moral laws, which had always applied things like murder and adultery. But he, he also established these laws of culture to mark them as a distinct family, a distinct tribe, a distinct nation. And I want you to notice that none of these were distinct genetic, genetically inherited features. This is beautiful as we saw in the book of Ruth so that when Ruth, a Moabite Gentile, converted to be a worshiper of the Lord and then married and had children with Boaz. Boaz who would be the great grandfather of David and ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no concern, no attention paid to any nonsense about genetics or genetic traits. No one's asking, is he going to be Jewish enough? Would he have the right hair or skin? Now that son of Ruth and Boaz, he would be circumcised. He would not eat pork or shellfish. He would not wear clothes of mixed materials. He would keep the law of the Lord and he would have sacrifices for his sins offered in the temple because he would fall short of the commands of God. But he was a full heir to the promises of God's redemption of sinners. The promise that God would make enemies his family someday by a lasting and enduring sacrifice. Which brings us to our fifth point, which is this. The blood of Christ redeems all nations. The blood of Christ redeems all nations. Now finally, you can turn in your Bibles to, if you haven't already, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Having laid this foundation of a humanity of many colors and languages and cultures covering the face of God as image bearers who have all fallen together into sin and who are all naturally born dead in sin as his enemies rather than his children. In comes the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that together. All of Ephesians chapter 2. And you, 
Verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all, uh, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, ra- and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is, a, the, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's the word of the Lord. I wonder if you noticed which group, Jew or Gentile, which was born in sin and dead in sin. Both. Jews and Gentiles, verse four, Paul is speaking, we, he's a Jew, The nation, the family, the people created by God called out from the nations. Wonder if you also noted, where does the redemption come from? Well, it would come from Abraham, of course, an heir of Abraham. It would come from Abraham's family, from his nation, from his people. That was God's promise to Abraham all along. From his offspring, would the world, the nations be blessed, an offspring from Abraham would come to crush the snake and be crushed in order to crush sin's dominion. 
You see this in our text, verse 11, all the words. You were separated from Christ, he says to the nations. Separated from the salvation that's in Christ, the salvation that saved Abraham. Who was saved by faith in Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise. You were aliens, but you're no longer, no longer alienated from the people, from the family, from the people of God. And you are now, did you see it? Citizens. You were those who had no hope and were without God in the world, but you're not any longer if you are united to Christ by faith. Both Jew and Gentile, if they're brought near to God, and not only near, but united into the body of Christ, brought near by Christ's blood, united to him, one in faith with him. Like a one flesh union, we've seen this as we've walked through scripture here, that we are united to Christ, part of his body, our covenant head. So that what he has done, his righteousness can count for us. It can be credited to us, his people, his family, his household, his kingdom. And being united to him, part of his body, his blood, by his blood, our sins were paid, punished for our sin on the cross. And by his resurrection from the dead, he has made us alive and made, his, made us a new creation. I want you also to see the result for those who trust in Christ, both Jew and Gentile have been made one. The dividing wall that God once had set up by these ordinances to establish, to mark off the people of God. He himself set up that dividing wall to set one nation, one household, one family apart from the rest to identify the people of God, the covenants of God. He himself set that up in those ordinances and he knocked it down in Christ. So now the people of God are not marked by this cultural or ethnic or familial distinction, but are one in Christ. No distinction in God's sight. God was the one who set that up and he knocks it down. So kosher or circumcision, inheritance by promises or by birth, they're now nothing, nothing in God's sight. God doesn't consider a particular ethnic group as particular. What he counts is Christ for the future promises. And not only if you are, or not if you are related to Christ, but if you are part of his body, are you an heir? There is no distinction. And that's proven to the apostle Peter after Jesus' resurrection, when God speaking of Gentiles said, do not call or treat as unclean what I have declared to be clean. The wall is gone. All nations redeemed by the blood of Christ. I want to turn to very practical application of this. What then does this mean for the questions that were asked at the beginning of this sermon? The questions that are being asked furiously and passionately and very confidently in our culture. First, I want us to see the bride of Christ, the redemption of all nations. Uh, the bride of Christ, the family of God, the temple, the body of Christ is a group of people of every tribe and nation and people group and language. And we see this beautifully displayed in Revelation 
chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and a great, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying in a loud voice, with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. So all the languages that were given at Babel and all the language that developed from that point forward, those who, were, who had been used to curse the Lord with those languages, those languages will now be used to glorify and praise Him and enjoy Him and thank Him for redeeming them who once were strangers, aliens, enemies, to now be beloved children, enjoying the seat of the table that only Christ deserves. The redemption of all nations in the blood of Christ, it also means that since culture is an expression of humanity, bearing the image of God, that it means it can be used for honorable and dishonorable purposes. Culture is an expression of humanity bearing the image of God, so it can be used for honorable and dishonorable purposes. We see this already in Genesis, before the flood, after the fall into sin, some of the most wicked cultures in scripture invented instruments which God calls his people to worship him with in the Psalms. See this in Genesis 4. Something that can be celebrated and used for the glory of God. We also see some cultural traits that aren't genetically inherited but learned and celebrated by some cultures. Some sinful traits that are learned and celebrated by some cultures. They're evil. And so a Christian needs to examine this and reject those traits which do not glorify God. Paul notes this in the book of Titus that Cretans were proud of being lazy and dishonest. And that's not an identity that can be embraced by a Christian Cretan. A Christian Cretan is a new creation. By all means, use Cretan instruments to praise and glorify God, but do not embrace that thing, that cultural identity, which dishonors God. So you can expect that belonging to Christ will put some of those wonderful aspects of your culture to a noble use for the name of Christ. And you can expect that some of the aspects of your culture will have to be abandoned because they do not fit with your new and truer identity of being in Christ. The next consequence is this. Ethnic partiality is a, is a wicked sin which denies the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ethnic partiality is a wicked sin that denies the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ we often call that racism. And as I said, that's a terrible word for it because there is one race, Adam's helpless race. It is a wicked sin. And Peter, 
learned this lesson a very hard way. You do not want the Apostle Paul to be your enemy. You don't want him confronting you. But Paul confronted Peter in the harshest of ways. When Peter, after having enjoyed fellowship, church Christian fellowship with Gentiles, because he was intimidated, decided he was not going to do that anymore. He now was refusing Christian fellowship with Gentiles. And Paul confronts him. We see this in Galatians chapter 2, 11. Galatians 2, 11. But when Cephas, which is another word for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There was one national, one familial, one cultural division that God did honor because he did set it up. There was one. There was one distinction. The separation of Israel from all other families, from all other nations. There was one. And if the Lord God has torn down that wall, that distinction, how dare we act as if it was up? And even worse, how dare we set up new ones? Distinctions that God never drew. Ethnic partiality is a wicked sin that denies the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this means that to honor someone as a human means to make no distinction based on ethnicity. God gives essential identities which determine dignity. Remember? We don't assign those. We don't discover those. We can't change those. God assigns these essential identities to determine dignity and how to honor someone. How to honor God by honoring that person. And this, ethnicity, is not one of them. There is not one way to treat an African man and one way to treat a Caucasian or Indian or Chinese man. There is, as we've seen, a way to treat a woman and a way to treat a man, but there is no such distinction given in scripture for ethnicity. Now, of course, we can notice and celebrate culture. There's much to celebrate in all the cultures, maybe not the Dutch, but every other culture. I'm sure there's things to celebrate it. But we are not permitted to treat someone favorably or unfavorably based on ethnicity or nationality. That is a denial of the gospel of Christ. Which is one people being saved by being united to Christ's death and resurrection and, and re by being united to him himself. Being united to him, the new man, the new Adam. So to justify a behavior towards someone based on their ethnicity, well, it would be fine to treat somebody that way if they were 
X, but not if they are Y. That is sinful. It has no place anywhere, especially not in the church. We don't treat somebody better or worse for those superficial reasons. That is the gospel denying sin of partiality. And let me assure you that any unrepentant activity of that in our church would result in a public excommunication. Treating somebody favorably or worse based on ethnicity is a wicked sin outside of the church as well as in the church. Brothers and sisters, we were all once far off. There was a time when the family of God, the household of God, only consisted of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, one God in three persons. This was it for the family of God. And Adam was brought into the household, but he was condemned for rebelling, for dishonoring God in that image. And all his children were condemned as well with him. Born in sin. Born not as children of God. Born not into the household of God. Not in the family of God. But strangers and enemies of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternally belonging. In the household of God. The Son of God, the only Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, in love for this bride, that the Father would give him a bride made of sinners of every single nation, every single ethnicity, every tribe and tongue and language, in love for her, he became part of the family of Adam. He became part of the household of men, He became an image bearer of God. He left his throne to save sinners. So this man who was not a stranger, not an enemy of God, but a son, the son, he took what we deserved on the cross. He became an enemy of God on the cross. He became sin. He took on our sin in judgment and was treated as an enemy, as a stranger, as a child of wrath, on the cross so that we, children of wrath, enemies of God, could be received forever as the children of God by faith in Him. As He deserves, for as long as He deserves it, which will be forever and ever and ever. I'll leave us with John 1, 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Brothers and sisters, let's pray.
Father in heaven, we rejoice that though we were born in sin, born outside of the family of God, born as strangers, as aliens, as foreigners, as enemies, without God and without hope in the world, separated from salvation that is in Christ, or that you sent your son at just the right time and Lord, you gave him a bride of people of all nations. And Lord, being united to her in a covenant, he took her sin as if it were his own and he gave her his righteousness, credited to her as if it were her own. And Lord, we rejoice that you have called people from all tribes and tongues and nations to be your church, to be your family, to be your royal priesthood, your holy nation. We are grateful that though we were strangers and enemies, that by grace we were saved through faith and we have become now your children by the blood of Christ. And Father, we pray that if there are people here who are not trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ, they're not repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ to reconcile them to God. Lord, I pray that you would open their blind eyes, soften their hard hearts, make them alive and save them. And for those of us who have been sinning, even though we belong to you, sinning by showing partiality, having an arrogance about ourselves, about the things of our families, Lord, or judging, prejudging other families or ethnicities or nations, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and you would cleanse us of those and you would lead us in gospel righteousness. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in this church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.